Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the NY Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Laufer, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have with us a great guest, Dr. Matthew Koslow, who is a senior analyst at the National Institutes of Public Policy, who recently published over the summer a new occasional paper, which I would encourage you to go read. It's at the, the NIP website. It's called Restraints at the Nuclear Brink, Factors in Keeping War Limited. So with that, Matt, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So you have this new paper. Could you tell the listeners, give us a sort of a synopsis of your main arguments? Sure. Uh, the idea behind this paper in part came about from the uh, Russia-Ukraine war. And what you read in the papers every day was uh, these kind of alarmist predictions about this action could lead to escalation or that action could lead to escalation. And there was a lot of this, I would call it confident alarmism. And uh, I wanted to look at what are the reasons why a state would choose restraint in the face of a, uh, a potential nuclear war scenario? Because obviously to this point, there has been a lot of restraint. There hasn't been escalation. There hasn't been, uh, you know, widespread nuclear conflagration. And that's been the case throughout nuclear history. A lot of leaders have chosen restraint a lot of the time. And so the thought was, let's try to look at the reasons for restraint just broadly, kind of scenario agnostic. And the better we understand some of these reasons for restraint, the better we can kind of tailor deterrence threats so that if we understand why an adversary is hesitant or uh, wary of escalating a conflict, we can reinforce those reasons and say, yeah, those are good reasons that you should not want to escalate. And so I, I kind of look through the classics, which just simply haven't been uh, read in a very long time and, and decision makers just don't know about them. You, you know how this goes in the Pentagon. You don't have time to just sit down and read on thermonuclear war and slog through everything. So uh, what I wanted out of this occasional paper is a good, easy checklist that decision makers can go through and say, have we thought about how the adversary thinks about its allies? Have we thought about how the adversary thinks about its domestic populace? And all these other factors that could potentially play into reasons for restraint. And if, if so, if we do think that is the case, how can we tailor our deterrence messages to reinforce those reasons? And now, so I... I 
No, go ahead. Well, you were in, in a previous position, you were actually in OSD policy as a special assistant. And so was part of your motivation for writing this, thinking back to when you were in the Pentagon and thinking, man, I kind of wish I would have had something that was useful, you know, to help me sort of a checklist to, to make sure I think through all of these things. Was that part of it? Or had you actually read the best-selling book, The Checklist Manifesto, which I read and, by the way, loved, and a book about the u- usefulness of checklists was enthralling. It was actually a really good book for those who haven't read it. So was it your your love of the checklist manifesto or your experience in OSD that sort of drove you to want to write this? So I haven't read the checklist manifesto, but now I think <laughs> I should. Yeah, no, it, it was my experience. And, and one of the things that really struck me about uh, that experience, and then I read uh, Richard Smoke's book, his classic uh, war on controlling escalation. And one thing that really stuck out was a lot of uh, a lot of the necessary intelligence that you would need in a scenario where nuclear war is a real possibility. A lot of that intelligence has typically uh, been there stuff that could um, help you discern the adversary's motivations, uh, their goals their capabilities. And, you know, Richard Smoke looks at the, the pre-nuclear age. Um, but the, the, it, it's all still there, right? Um, a lot of intelligence analysts had the information, but the political leaders just didn't know to ask it. And, and that's what I wanted this little, you know, it turned out to be 120 some pages, but at the very end in the appendix, is the two page kind of checklist that says, Hey, let's look at these things. And one of the best things about the Pentagon was you get daily intelligence updates. And we had an intelligence officer in embedded in our office. And I kind of wish I had that list at that point, And I could just kind of hand it to him and say, what products do we have on these 17 factors essentially? Yeah. And so if you could go through for the listener sort of your your main points. I mean, what what were the key takeaways? What are the the things as we take, you know, you had a a chapter on limited war and on some of these sort of key topics that as we think through the Ukraine and what's going on and then as we think to the future about potential conflict with Taiwan you know, what might be relevant to both these, the, the ongoing conflict and what may come in the future? Sure. The So, so one of the main findings was um, actually how I was surprised by this at the end, after I come up with kind of listed all these factors is I was surprised how many factors related to external uh, countries that aren't necessarily party to the conflict. So uh, Russia, for instance, they have to worry about what China thinks if they go nuclear. And uh, Russia has to worry about what Iran thinks if they go nuclear. And uh, we, of course, have to think about what NATO thinks should we go nuclear, right? And so there's a lot of um, external factors. And I think that's a, um, that that's probably a check on the side of 
it's good for the U.S. to maintain a network of allies because it complicates the deterrence calculus for the adversary. Not only do they have to consider our decision calculus, but they have to consider the decision calculus of each other separate country that could enter the conflict. And this was, again, another point of Richard Smokes was that uh, whatever you do in the war, you don't want to trip up and activate a latent vital interest in another state because suddenly you've changed the security calculus for another state. Um, Another important factor I thought was this kind of goes to a Colin Gray uh, maxim, which is a war should be fought in such a way that it doesn't preclude the possibility of peace. If the ultimate goal of the conflict is to uh, achieve your political objectives, the way you conduct that conflict should not be disproportionate to those political objectives. And so, uh, yeah, like we, we found this in a study earlier this year with NIP is um, in a Taiwan scenario, China may be tempted to go nuclear for some reason, you know, they're failing conventionally. Uh, they think it would have good coercive effect, but uh, if they do so and they're successful, even if they're successful and they do take Taiwan, but they successfully use nuclear coercion in some way, it could activate that vital uh, latent national interest in South Korea and Japan to eventually want their own nuclear weapons because they they see our neighbor is now willing to go nuclear to achieve their political objectives and we can't rely on the United States. And so the way they fight a war in Taiwan might be, you know, especially uh, uh, useful for that. Um, and I think uh, a final finding I'll share is that, yes, there's more pathways potentially for escalation. That's sort of a, a hot topic right now of cyber and space and all these new ways that a conflict could escalate. I'm not sure I'm totally on board with that. I think there's there's also plenty of reasons why it may not escalate, even though there's more domains in which it could escalate. Um, but one of the findings is, since there are more ways that a conflict could escalate just from a pure domains perspective, that behoo- it behooves the United States to have a diverse array of military capabilities that can be applied flexibly, adaptably throughout a conflict from peace all the way through nuclear war to accomplish U.S. objectives. And the worst thing that can happen is you're stuck in a nuclear war and you didn't have the flexibility you wanted. You can't terminate it on a favorable political course because you don't have the right weapons to do it or it's not a credible threat. So uh, that that's one of the major findings I think that's important for readers. So is your premise that having nothing but strategic nuclear weapons might not be the best approach? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, radical, I know. That's, Minimum that's deterrence, nuts. not so good. Wow. I mean, I've not read that in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. So uh, that's a that's a new idea. Wow. Who would have well, ever it, thunk? It, it's it's one of the 
this is a, a little side topic, but it's it's one of the things that I think we really should push back more on is uh, any time you mention needing diverse capabilities for diverse uh, political motivations and diverse scenarios, you're painted as a nuclear warfighter. But if your theory of deterrence involves any single limited strike in any form, even if it's just one, congratulations, you will now have a nuclear war fighting strategy. So we shouldn't let critics get to set the tone and say, well, I'm not a nuclear war fighter. Well, unless you are proposing a massive first strike in which the other side can't even fight, you are a nuclear warfighter. It's it's silly that the these labels get tossed around and people don't even recognize the implications. Well, it, to me, it, you know, you bring up a good topic and it's one of the things that, you know, um, makes me want to pull my hair out. It's just this idea that, that you, that nuclear weapons exist to deter other nuclear weapons and that's it. And my premise is, well, if, if you have that view, you make them ineffective. Yes. And so what you have to do is you have to tell your adversary, I have built the capability. I have built the operational plan to engage in nuclear war up and down the spectrum of conflict in terms of I can use small ones. I can use them in low numbers. I can use them on discrete targets. I can use them in such a way that I don't create you know, uh, residual radiation, you know, you know, I've, I've thought about how to just collapse buildings with a, a you know, through, through, uh, air bursts. I've, I've done all this work. I'm willing to do it. And I've, and you know, I've got the capability and the will and therefore that's what deters an adversary. And, and I, what I don't understand is why those opponents, those who, advocate disarmament don't understand that that approach this sort of moniker well you you want to fight nuclear wars it's like no i prepare to fight a nuclear war i don't want to fight a nuclear war but i am prepared and by being prepared i'm more likely to deter i'm more likely to achieve the outcome you desire yes and i don't understand how that's not a fairly it's it's logical it's common sense it's yeah. Why? Why are the, the advocates of nuclear disarmament? Why do they not understand that? What's the challenge? So, so I think first I'll say I, I support what you said, and it goes back to the Scowcroft Commission. They said uh, deterrence requires military effectiveness. That these can't be bluffs, because when bluffs get called in nuclear war, really bad things are going to happen. Right. One thing I read, one reason I think that the critics continue to hold on to this idea is that it sounds logical in their mind. The more usable a nuclear weapon is, the more likely it is to be used. And to that, I would just answer, well, let's look at history. Back in the Cold War, we had how many thousand Honest Johns? And people on the front lines with these, you know, supposedly more usable nuclear weapons. And the Soviets had way more of these usable nuclear weapons. And we went through all of these crises with usable nuclear weapons. 
So it's on the critics to say, it's on the critics to prove, demonstrate, iterate anything that their view is the right one historically. I, I just don't see the evidence for it. Uh, just because I have a gun in my house doesn't mean I'm going to use it. More likely, it's just uh, I, I'm not itching to pull the trigger on anybody. But yeah. for it to be to to have some sort of deterrent effect, uh, you you have to have it. It has to be assembled, and uh, has um, you 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 have to be to have the weapon implies a willingness to use it. Right. Yeah. Well, we're at that point in the show where we have to take quick breaks. So we'll do that. But when we come back, what I want to, I want to shift to this topic of you, you talked about uh, limited nuclear war. And so I want to, I want you to give us sort of your take on limited nuclear war uh, so you're listening to Nuclecast with Matt Coslow. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Amla Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Matt Coslow. And before the break, I asked Matt to give me a, his view of limited nuclear war. So how, how do you see that working? How do you see that potentially playing out? So one of the things I, I make sure to mention is that this paper that I wrote about nuclear restraints, it assumes that we have the uh, operational capabilities to actually choose restraint. It assumes we have the NC3 that's needed to do it. It assumes that we have uh, nuclear war plans that are responsive to the political objectives. So uh, I, I want to state up front that I'm not assuming that in every case, uh, everything is going to work out perfectly. Uh, only to acknowledge that, hey, look, the scope of the papers was just about these, um, these theoretical scenarios. So one of the chapters I wrote was on the possibility of can nuclear war stay limited? And it's been one of the you know, most debated nuclear policy topics in, in the field, really. And I looked back, wanted to see what uh, U.S. leaders have said previously about this. Right. And, uh, you know, there's a range. There's the James Schlesinger types who say... Yeah, I think nuclear war could stay limited. Uh, Henry Kissinger said the same. I don't think the the Soviets have a uh, unbridled appetite for escalation. Uh, Harold Brown was a little more circumspect. He thought the likelihood, which is important, likelihood of limiting nuclear war is not that great, but it's the U.S. duty to try and and he took that very seriously, even if he had doubts about its uh, effectiveness or potential effectiveness. He thought we should try, we should have the capabilities uh, that would enable such a limitation. And then uh, uh, Cap Weinberger, Reagan's Secretary of Defense, uh, kind of shifted back towards the James Schlesinger model. He thought that we can 
uh, limited limit nuclear war potentially, and that we needed the uh, capabilities and the threats to appear credible to do so. And and I wanted to see if uh, how U.S. leaders and apparently Russian and Chinese leaders, uh, because their doctrines and their forces certainly make it appear that they think nuclear war can stay limited in some fashion. Um, I wanted to see if that accorded with the, the great theorists, right? Thomas Schelling, Herman Kahn, Robert Jervis, Colin Gray. And I found in all of their works, uh, despite their vastly different views on these subjects, they all agreed that there were rational reasons why uh, nuclear war could stay limited because political leaders have that option. And so uh, one thing, the, the I guess, major punchline of this is uh, there's basically three reasons or uh, three factors necessary, but not necessarily sufficient um, that nuclear war could stay limited. First factor is both sides have to believe that nuclear war can stay limited just as a possibility. Second, both sides have to want nuclear war to stay limited. Once both sides think it can stay limited and should stay limited, both sides have to uh, basically see some action. They have to see some evidence that the other side believes that. There has to be some sort of demonstration. There has to be some sort of uh, belief that the other side thinks in somewhat the same way. Once you have all three of those factors, nuclear war could very well stay limited. Again, assuming that the capabilities for like NC3 and political control over your forces are still there. Uh, and so part of this paper basically says, look, there's very significant political reasons why restraint might be the best choice in a whole host of scenarios. This paper is not predictive. It doesn't say in all scenarios, nuclear war certainly will stay limited. No one can say that credibly. Uh, but it does say that we need to uh, think about these things systematically and do it before there's a, a, a real chance of nuclear conflict, because the worst thing you want to do is be stuck in the Pentagon or the White House trying to figure these things out, saying, I wish I had thought more about this. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, a handful of years ago, Joe Williams and myself uh, wrote an article, I think it was in the National Interest, and what we did is we looked at the classified degree war games and some Air Force Title X war games, and then we, you know, we sort of uh, wrote a a lessons learned, an unclassified lessons learned article about what, what do you know about communicating in the midst of a nuclear conflict based on, you know, the, these war games, because we had run a handful of them at the time. And so we were like, what are the lessons learned? And one of the things that we learned, and this sort of goes to your point about limited nuclear wars, that we learned that communicating in the midst of conflict is is very challenging 
And, and that would be one of the, you know, sort of one of the challenges is that as you try to message a potential adversary and cause you know, inevitably, you know, the red or blue team will try to, will do some action for the sake of messaging. And because of the, you know, the uncertain, the fog and friction of war that, you know, that Clausewitz talks about that message is often lost, right. but it, it seems pretty clear at least to me that, you know, if you're using low yield weapons or ultra low yield weapons and you're, you know, you're using them, you know, for example, I've, I've written a handful of articles on how do you use low yield weapons uh, without, uh, without creating a lot of residual radiation? How can you blow stuff up or conduct demonstration strikes in such a way that you either message, you hit a target, but you don't create, you know, irradiated areas that, be, you know, are this sort of horror show that, that we're led to believe all nuclear war must inherently be. And so, and the, the part of the premise was, was that nuclear weapons are actually quite usable and that they're not necessarily this societal ending thing and that the Russians and Chinese, they, they understand the weapons effects just like we do. And so right. therefore they understand how to operationally use nuclear weapons for limited purposes. And so we better stop, you know, having our head in the sand in terms of thinking that this is a possibility. So that, that sort of leads me to, to my next question, which is how well, you know, form, you were a former defense official, how well, do you think, uh, you know, as we move from administration to administration, people, the appointees come and go, but there's that consistent staff that stays. Right. Do you think that they fundamentally understand, you know, how, how you can use this sort of wide swath of options that you have for using nuclear weapons? Is that well understood? And is it well discussed such that we Maybe we don't talk about it in the public, but at least in the Pentagon, we're talking about, hey, you know, here's what the Chinese and the Russians might do, and here's how they might do it. Is is that going on? It depends on the office, honestly. Um, the Joint Staff, very well versed in this stuff. STRACOM, very well versed in this. Um, OSD policy, somewhat. Uh, I, I'd say there's... Um, there's some good understanding of the fundamentals of deterrence, uh, but it's sort of been a symptom of the Cold War. It, it's still pervasive in a lot of the government that this idea that once one nuclear weapon goes off, strategy disappears. And that's just not the case. And unless it is a a first strike, which is essentially irrational at, at where we are right now. Uh, strategy never disappears. As, as long as you still have political objectives that are limited in some fashion, um, strategy still has a place. And we are trying to better understand Russia and China. Uh, it would be nice if we just captured their war plans and could see exactly what they were planning. Uh, but, you know, likely that's not going to happen. Um, the best we can do and what I'm trying to argue in this paper is, yeah, escalation controlling that is going to be hard. 
it, it, it depends on getting inside an adversary's mind. And by the way, that mind is not always conforming to Western standards of what we think is rational. Wait a second. Yeah. Are you saying that Chinese don't think like we do and don't have the same values? Yes. Oh my goodness. Wow. Mind blown. Would not have thought that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and it's complicated. This whole two nuclear peer threat environment, just like what you talked about, how do we send a message to Russia that doesn't get misinterpreted by China or vice versa? And, uh, you know, one of the things that people are going to slowly discover here is how we conduct ourselves in a crisis or conflict with one side is going to send very clear messages to the other side. Oh, yeah. But they may not be the messages we want them to learn. Yep. Yeah, it's uh it's a very, very true thing. And it's, you know, I think that's probably, you know, we as Americans are terrible uh, at mirror imaging. And, and we, we seem to, you know, it's one of the big complaints. When I used to, you know, whenever I was a military guy, I spent a lot of time in Europe and we were all, we always got warned. We, you know, we'd go in for our OSI briefs and we'd go in for our, you know, other briefs before we would go. And it's like, Hey, tone down the Americanness, you know, <laughs> stop bragging. And it's like, what? But, but America is great. Why wouldn't we talk about it? So it's, it's just part of that mindset that we as Americans have, you know, understandable um, that, that, we don't see why others don't see the world the way we do. And, and it's, the problem is, is it, it seems to, you know, afflict the, the senior leadership as well. And so therefore we, we sort of miscalculate and misjudge our adversaries. Absolutely. The, uh, this goes back to a, a book called uh, strategy and ethnocentrism by Ken Booth. Highly recommended for all your readers, uh, listeners, 150 some pages, but it looks at why do we consistently get it wrong about the Soviets? This was a, I think, 1970s book. And uh, he has a great line in there about hawks and doves and how during the Cold War, lots of doves assumed there were parallels in the Kremlin. There were doves in the Kremlin. And he said, bad ornithology makes bad strategy, (laughs) right? Assuming that the birds in the Kremlin are the same as the birds here is just wrong. They're they're a whole different species. And so, you know, we're we're getting better at that. I, I would say that is something nuclear strategy has progressed on over the decades. We we've now it's now become mainstream to talk about tailoring deterrence. Yeah, and how a threat against Russia doesn't always translate to a threat against China uh, in the same credible way. So, how can we lean into that in the future? Uh, we need more anthropologists in the field. We need more sociologists. We need more uh, psychologists. We need all of those people with uh, regional experience. So, you know. Uh, it's great for you and me to discuss the finer points of nuclear policy. But one of the ways we're really going to advance tailoring is by reaching out to uh, people that are a bit outside the political science writ large field. Yeah. Now, before we end the show, I want to bring out Bob, my genie that I picked up in the desert. 
and I want, I'm going to rub my little lamp. Bob pops out as always. And he, you know, he's granted me my three wishes. Now he's going to grant you three wishes. So as you have three wishes about nuclear strategy and policy, what would those three wishes be? Ooh, tough one. Honestly, I would top of my list would be uh, improved homeland missile defenses. I think that would go a long way towards adding a deterrence by denial aspect to our nuclear war strategy. And uh, it would go a long way towards deterring the threat of limited coercive strikes, which I think is one of the, the worst uh, threats facing the nation right now. Russian and China, uh, they know what our national defense strategy is, and that is to project power from the homeland overseas. And they want to stop that. They either want to deter it or dissuade it if it's underway. Um, and they want to do that via limited conventional or nuclear strikes on the homeland. So I think that's that's first one. Uh, second, I think, is a more diverse nuclear arsenal. Uh, it doesn't have to be nuclear landmines or a status six torpedo or anything like that. I'm not interested in going uh, system for system with the Russians. We don't need that. I think what we need is a survivable nuclear force that can stand against two uh, peer threats, withstand a first strike, and still present a credible threat to the second. Um, I don't want the possibility of catalytic nuclear war to become to become real. So I think a, a more survivable deterrent, um, yeah, that's probably going to be Slickum, uh, but I, I don't want to put all my eggs in the uh, sea-based basket, as it were. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd like to explore a little bit more some glickum options or, you know, perching 2.0 sort of things. And I suppose three, uh, if I can get esoteric, would be uh, what we just discussed. Uh, having an improved knowledge base for the field. Uh, having those outside experts that are experts in uh, cultural psychology, in um, individual psychology, in communications, uh, all these different areas. I think, you know, diversity gets tossed around a lot in this field. Uh, I, I want diversity of um, expertise. Uh, expertise, right, exactly. And the more we can have that, the better I think we can tailor deterrence and and you know to all these critics who say we just want more nuclear weapons if we better tailor deterrence and have a better more credible threat to russia or china we don't need to continue building up right as long as we can still accomplish all of our objectives this should help them too yeah yeah matt costlo thanks for joining us on nuclecast Thank you for having me. Fantastic. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode, and we will see you next time. It's always good to talk 
to Matt. Uh, he's one of those, you know, if you look at sort of the, on the side of the folks that are sort of the, if you want to call them the pro nuclear deterrent side, Matt's one of that younger generation who will, you know, come in behind the Keith Paynes and the, you know, the Mark Schneiders and all of the, the folks that are the sort of that second generation for, to become that third generation. And he's a really great thinker. And, and, you know, it's the, the paper that he discussed, you know, it's on the, the National Institutes for Public Policy website. So go check it out. Take a look at that checklist that he, that's in the appendix and, you know, see if it's useful for you and helps your thinking you know, I enjoy talking to him and enjoyed, you know, he gave me a couple books that I need to read that I hadn't ever read before. So hopefully he'll spur you in the same way. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.